It is uh, May 18th. It is 2016. Tonight our message is called Iron Men and Maidens. So, uh, yeah, relax. We will not be working on the number of the beast or any of the things associated with the devilish group. We're going to be talking about the word of God. Amen? Let's do this. We're going to uh, put many of these on the screen tonight, and there's a couple passages that we're going to park in tonight. I absolutely loathe the electronic age. I do not at all like uh, electronic Bibles. And yet... Tonight, I'm going to put many of these things on the screen for you so that you can see where we learned some of the things that we learned. So in your physical Bible, why don't you find yourself in Philippians, the second chapter? Say there when you're there. Say a colo or a key or whichever language you want to want to run with this evening. Hallelujah. So in Philippians 2, let us check this one out. It is a good verse. Starting in verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. What an incredible passage this is. Do everything without complaining. Somebody say complaining or arguing. So that you may become. It turns out that complaining and arguing hinder you in becoming what God called you to be. It turns out that all of us are called to become something. And complaining and arguing are contrary to what you are called to become. Secondly, from this verse. We are in a crooked and depraved generation. If that was true in the first century, 20 centuries later, how true do you think it is? If Peter tells us not to be swept away in a flood of dissipation, how dirty do you think those waters are today? You know, of all the things that they had in the first century, we didn't have to argue about unisex bathrooms. We are supposed to shine like stars in the darkness of the universe. Arguing and complaining hinder your shine. Look at your neighbor say, I'm about to get my shine on. Let's talk for just a minute about the word complaining here. I put the Greek on the screen for you because sometimes people like to see it. I put the reference for you so that you know where to look to find this kind of information. I'd like to thank Cassidy Piro for bringing this to my attention. This word, gagusimos, means to grumble or to murmur. Grumbling, grudging, murmuring, murmuring or muttering in general, murmuring from discontentment, grumbling. How many more ways could we say that, right? A good example of this would be in Exodus 16. 
So in Exodus 16, we have the people freshly out of Egypt, the few chapters before. What has happened is God has drowned the enemy in the Red Sea and saved them. But in Exodus 16, starting in verse 6, it says, So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. In the Greek version of the Older Testament, this is the same word, gagusimos, uh, and it means a grumbling that can be heard, hence the word complaining. No real revelation there, right? Well, what is the difference between complaining and arguing? And why would Philippians 2 tell us that we are to do everything without two real problems, complaining or arguing? To us, complaining and arguing are very similar words, but they're not similar here in the Greek. When we're talking about complaining, gogusimos, what it literally relates to is what you are verbalizing. How many times have you talked to somebody and they say, you just misunderstood me? That's not at all what my heart was. I know that I said those words, but that's, that's not what I meant. Well, why don't we take the word arguing then? So this will be our next slide, Susan. The word for arguing here is dialogismos. It's where you get the word dialogue. Now check this out. Generally speaking, it's used of these passages where judges had evil thoughts. It's used of being unjust or partial inside. Now where does that occur? Where do your thoughts occur? Certainly that's not something that's just verbalized. Uh, it's a reasoning opinion. It's your mind, your purpose, your intention. Look at this line, especially evil thoughts or purposes. The secondary definition is in the sense of a dispute or a debate or a contention and can be in a verbal form. But understand that when we see this particular Greek word, it primarily relates to something that's going on inside of you. So complaining is something that can be discerned outside of you, while this dialogismos is something that's going on inside of you. How many of you know that what's going on inside of you will eventually show up on the outside of you? If you have disdain in your heart for somebody, it's only a matter of time before your actions begin to show it. We spend a lot of our time clothing ourselves in this thing that says, well, you just misunderstood me. Well, maybe you misunderstand you. The heart is evil. It's wicked beyond cure. Maybe your actions are a better meter for where your heart is than your own thoughts about your heart. I'd like to show you a passage that Jesus reveals dialogismos. There was an argument in Luke 9. It's Luke 9, 46. An argument, a dialogismos, started among the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Now, because of the way that we sometimes think of the scripture in Sunday school terms, you picture these men as saying, I'm greater. No, I'm greater. But most of the time, our arguments are a little more nuanced than that, aren't they? Probably none of them were actually saying that they were greater than the others. They might have just been demeaning one of them. Look at the next sentence. Jesus, knowing their 
thoughts. Took a little child and had him stand beside him. And we know the rest of the story. My point is, the argument that they were having was just a manifestation of thoughts that they were dwelling on. It turns out that in the Bible, we're supposed to do everything without complaining. That's an outward projection of negativity. Or dwelling on an inner dialogue that is negative. And that that helps us become something. Amen? Let's examine that as we move a little further. We'll see if you still want to say amen. So in our next slide, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? How many times have you personally been in a discussion, be it with a boss or a spouse or a pastor, and said, look, that was not my heart. I was recently in a ministerial discussion with a staff of pastors where repeatedly what we heard was, that is not my heart. I've heard it maybe 33, 34 times, and I'm going to be honest, I lost my temper just a little bit. I don't care where the man believes his heart is because we can clearly see where his actions are. You defending the innermost thoughts of your heart against your actions is futile and against the scripture because the scripture teaches that your heart is revealed in your actions. So if a man says, I love you in my heart, but he punches you in the face, I love you in my heart, but I punch you in the face. I love you in my heart, but I punch you in the face. How long ladies before you're going to question the intention of his heart? How about the king of Shechem, Hamor, his son, whose name was Shechem? He loved Dina in his heart, he said. Of course, he raped her. Would you call that love? No, I, I wouldn't either. His heart was wicked and beyond cure. Let us see Matthew twelve thirty three. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. How will the tree be recognized? By its fruit. Even a child is recognized by his actions. If we could just come to an honest place in Christ and say, you know what? I'm not going to presume my intentions are better than my actions demonstrate. I will not use that as a defense against all correction that is coming my way. I will no longer stave off the rest of the universe and say, you don't see me clearly. You don't understand me clearly. Because they see and understand exactly what you are showing them Every day, we are called to shine forth clearly into the darkness. And if we are not shining, we don't need to blame everyone around us. We need to purify our own hearts. Amen. You know, most deeply held convictions come from something that the Lord shows you. And once he has showed you then what is inside you begins to work outside you in a very holy way, in a beautiful way. I'd like to read to you First Chronicles 28 and verse 9. Check this one out. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted, somebody say wholehearted, wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart, and understands every motive behind the thoughts. How, how does he understand you? He understands why you think 
what you think. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Solomon was a a man unique in history. Did his thoughts become corrupted? How do you know his thoughts became corrupted? Because his actions became corrupted. In the body of Christ, we're fond of talking about position. I stand in Christ. If we stand in Christ, then it ought to show somewhere besides the inner recesses of your heart. In fact, the whole purpose behind baptism in water is so that you can begin to display to the rest of the world what has happened to you on the inside. It begins as a pledge of a conscience, of a good conscience towards God in Christ. Um, And it shows up in the way that you are walking in your new life. If a man walks in the darkness yet claims to be in the light, then the first chapter of 1 John says something about him. He is a liar and does not practice the truth. But what we tend to say is, you just misunderstand me. You don't know my heart. One of the things that I'm learning is that none of us knows our own heart. You think that you do. Uh, you would like to know your own heart, but it is wicked beyond cure. And so your heart is deceptive. And it will um, absolve you of all wrongdoing in any situation. Have you noticed man's capacity for transferal of the blame? You know, beginning in the in the garden, you know, uh, Adam, uh, why did you do this? Well, God, it was the, the woman you gave me. Woman, why did you do this? It was that snake, you know. Snakes got nobody to blame. It's never our fault. In the Baton Rouge, Louisiana traffic court, they had to come up with a new plea. People would not plead guilty when they were obviously guilty. And so what happened is they were taking their stand in court. They were saying, I want, I want a trial. And then they get to the trial and it's obvious that they're guilty and it clogs up the system, right? They offered them the chance to have a plea that was guilty with explanation. Now, it doesn't change your guilt, not at all. It just gives you the chance to feel a little bit better about your guilt. And you know, it streamlined the whole system. Nobody had a problem as long as they were allowed to say why they were guilty. Here comes the word of God, and it will help us. In Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. When the Christian comes to the place where you no longer believe you have the right to think what you want to think, when you no longer believe that you are a proper judge of your own heart, when you no longer believe that you are the singular authority in your own life about your life, but instead the word of God is, we have come to a very powerful place. This is why so many of us carry our Bibles everywhere we go. I no longer have the right to think what I want to think about a subject. I look to see what the word of God says about it. And that tells me 
what I think about it. Ladies, how many of you would be incredibly benefited if you actually believe what the word of God said about you? You know, where would be the place for insecurity knowing that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? Where would be the place for inadequacy knowing that his spirit has given you everything that you need for life and godliness? Where would be the place for self-loathing knowing that he himself made you and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, it would eliminate a great many evils that exist in our thoughts all of the time. Men, if we sought first the kingdom and actually believed that he would add to us everything we needed, how much anxiety would be eliminated from your life? If we did everything without arguing or complaining... How much anxiety would be if we were joyful always and prayed continually for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What would your life look like? We sing this song and every once in a while one of our brothers dances to it and I love it. You haven't known me till you've known me full of joy. Well, honestly, that ought to be the only way that we know you. We ought never have seen anything else. And if we did see it, we should go, oh, that's not really them. That is the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. This is what it looks like when lives are governed by the word of God. Let us look at John 12. In John 12, 36, put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become, say, so you may become. So you may become sons of light. Guys, the word of God helps you become something. Now, there's good news. If you are still becoming something... That means there's room to grow. That means there's mercy for what you're not yet. See, salvation is presented sometimes in the past tense. It is uh, by grace you have been saved. It is also presented in the present tense as ongoing. Continue to work out your salvation. It is presented in the future tense. We're waiting on the redemption of our bodies. You are a work in progress. You are becoming something. If you were becoming a master mechanic and you made a mistake, it's okay because you're not a master mechanic yet. But once you claim to be the master mechanic and you don't know how to change the oil in a car, well, that's embarrassing, isn't it? We ought to be patient with each other as long as we can acknowledge we're becoming something. The people Jesus was never patient with, I mean never, were those that already said they could see and had no problems with blindness. A blind man comes to him, he heals him. A man comes and claims that he can see. And he said, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the infirmed. See, there is something uh, about God's heart that is revealed in his desire to show his strength in your weakness. It's very important that we understand Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining, outward expressions of ungodliness. Or arguing inner dialogue that is ungodly so that you may become. Say, so I may become. Hey, what are you becoming? Blameless, pure children of God. The first chapter of John, the 12th verse says how that happens. He said, but to those who believed on him, he gave the right to become children of God. In trusting him at every step, you are becoming something that you never were before. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, 
put it in a, a, a tense that has already happened in English. It says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have gone. Behold, all things are new. But in the Greek, that actually says something more like this. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he has become and is becoming new. Old things have perished and are continuing to perish through neglect. All things are continuously being transformed. The tense of the verb is an ongoing process. Now, the reason that I say that is you are in the middle of becoming something and there are two rival spiritual powers that have vastly different designs on what you become. So in every situation, we have a tool that can be in the hand of either spiritual power. Our king says, in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He says that in Romans 8, 28. But we don't always see everything happening to us as good, do we? Sometimes we're pretty sure it's the devil. Well, what happened to our trust in Romans 8, 28? What happened to in all things God works? Why do we give the enemy credit for being able to work something into our life when the Bible says God works in all things? He's big enough to use the devil like I could use Abby to defend myself against Gabe. I could pick her up and just slap Gabe all over his face with her feet and it's not a problem at all. It's not difficult for our king to manipulate the enemy. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He could actually say in Genesis 3 that he was going to use uh, the seed of the woman to overcome the enemy. And almost 4,000 years into human history have a son of man born that crushes the head of the enemy. It's like a boxer calling the round. Yeah, how about Second Peter 1 in verse 8? Let us look at that together. We're going to flash a few of these on the screen for a second, Susan. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to possess things like brotherly love and kindness in an increasing measure. There's a reason for it. Uh, Hebrews 5.14 says that the mature, I let it get on the screen here, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Do you hear that in Christianity there is a maturing that is supposed to occur? That constant use of the word of God does it? That an increasing walking in holiness does it? How about Ephesians 4.13? In Ephesians 4.13, we see the way in which the fivefold ministry comes into action. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. See, we are in a process of becoming something. And the inner attitudes of our heart, as well as our outward expressions, either aid or hinder our growth. Well, that would be a sober moment for you to think about which is happening to you. How about Colossians 4.12? In Colossians 4.12, 
we see another admonition about becoming mature. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greeting. He's, he is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. How could we stand complaining that we don't have enough and at the same time assured that God provides all that we need? How, how can we do it? How can we stand confident that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion and yet dissatisfied with his working in our life right now? See, these are hindrances to our growth. The word of God is actually supposed to call it out. One of the things that Jeremiah cried over, the word lament means to cry, is in Lamentations 2.14, Jeremiah says about the prophets of his people, your visions were false and mis- the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. Well, good thing that was only during the Babylonian captivity and we don't have it going on now, right? What we really want is we want the word to lay our heart bare. Now, those of you that have accepted that principle, Like, oh, I love the word. You want the word to lay your heart bare in private where nobody else knows about it so that no one will know that you still have to mature. But what we should want is an accurate reflection of exactly where we actually are so what everyone can praise God for the progress that's happening in our lives. See, if we appear more mature than we are for a season, then what does everybody experience when they find out what we really are? This is why we sit at the foot of the table and wait for Jesus to raise us to the head. It's why it's important that we have no selfish ambition in us. God will gain glory through others seeing you mature beyond what you're struggling with today. They can't do that if they don't know what you're struggling with today. Is there anybody in here that's a finished product? Anybody that's hair's not turning gray or falling out? Anybody in here that is not experiencing the effects of gravity? Anybody that no longer needs to eat, sleep, or and, and death has no hold anywhere? I just wanted to make sure that we're all still becoming something. Amen? That ought to give us mercy towards each other. It really... And, and we have a way of maturing past something but not giving our brothers time to do the same. Yeah? Why don't we check this one out? This is Psalm 119, verse 72. This is how I think we combat these things. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousand pieces of silver or gold. That's entirely different than using the law that comes from God's mouth to extort thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Why is it that every time the TV is turned on, every time the radio was turned on, every time the modern charismatic pastor is speaking, all we hear about is money. We hear so little about transformational change in your life. We hear so little about you being called to the higher standard of the word. So little of your sin being addressed. I mean, we're okay with sin being addressed outside the building, but not inside the building. Could it be that God's word is no longer more precious 
than a thousand pieces of silver and gold. It's simply a tool to get the pieces of silver and gold. You know, the Jews had this right in their Talmud. They said, never use the Torah as a spade or shovel to dig with. In other words, it was not a tool to earn a living. It was the transformational power of God on earth. Why do you have the book that you have in your lap? Well, we could ask some of you and you would say, well, it's a better way to live. We could ask others and you would say, so that the world might know. Both of those things are true. Tolstoy said everyone dreams of changing the world. No one starts with themselves. I believe in the Great Commission to the extent that in my life I've gone to more than 30 nations bringing the message of the gospel. But that's no more useful than the gospel has made it to the areas of my own life. See, when we shine forth the principles of the gospel, they have to come from the innermost parts of our being and express themselves in the outermost parts of our lives. But instead, when we stand and say, you don't rightly see me, you rightly don't understand me, you don't know my heart, we actually defy the very scripture that we say we uphold because a tree is known by its fruit and a person, their actions. David said it so clearly. He said, from evildoers come evil deeds. So what are your actions saying? Are they full of faith? If you love the word of God, if it's more precious than anything else to you, then how often do you go without it? Look, anybody in here have a car that they've bought in the last year? Wow. Where are your keys to that car right now? All three. All three of the people that bought a car in the last year have their keys on them right now. Do you know why that is? They don't want anybody else in that car. That's their car. It's their car. It's their blessing. They're not going to leave those keys on the back dash of somebody else's car because they might borrow it. But you leave your Bible somewhere for a week and not think anything about it. You say, hey, I got one on my phone. Really? That kind of tells us what is precious and what is not, doesn't it? See, we live in a time where if you say that you're a Christian, everybody has to accept that despite your actions. Of course, if you're a man standing there with male genitalia and you say that you feel like a woman, you're a woman too. I don't know which one's more perverse. At least one is just, you know, a confusion over anatomy. The other is a confusion over an eternal identity. Are you upset with Target? You know who I'm upset with? The church that has let it get to this point. That we can even have this discussion. If we were doing this even 60 years ago, Target would be run out of business in a moment. Of course, we also would have different elected officials. A lot of things would be different. When we stop loving the word of God, we become uncorrectable and the world becomes unchanged. When we love the word of God, we are always repenting, always growing towards him, and we change the world around us. The first century started with 12 men, 12, who loved the king. One of them turned out to be a devil, and the other 11 so changed the world... They so dramatically transformed the world 
that when we say it's the year 2016, we're counting from the year they say he was born. I mean, that's incredible. There's no area of the globe today that that part of the message hasn't reached. And there were just 11 scared Jewish boys. What could you do if you really loved the word of God? How about Psalm 139, 17? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. Do you know God's thoughts about your life? Do you know God's thoughts about your business? Do you know God's thoughts about your spouse? Do you know God's thoughts about the one that you're dating? How important are God's thoughts to you? One thing that I see is an epidemic in the body of Christ is we do what we like and then we ask him to bless it. We are supposed to ask for his thoughts and then carry out his will declared in the heavens on the earth below. How can we possibly be doing that when we do whatever we chose to do and then pray that God will bless it and make it fruitful? We have our cart before the horse, so to speak. If we could just begin to ask God for his thoughts, how many times do you think he would tell you to complain? How many times do you think that your inner dialogue would remain negative if God himself gave you his thoughts? 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, and the 16th verse. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may have instructed him? But we have the mind of Christ. Is that scripture true for you? You have to get out of your mind to get in his. It means that when everybody else is running, you might stop and pray. It means when everybody else is celebrating, you might be crying. It means that you will be distinctly different from the natural world around you. Today, how much time could you say that you took to gain the mind of Christ? Or did you just go through your day like you go through most days and you hope that you were doing okay and at the end of the day you maybe ask him to bless what you did today? That's like Finishing your year and then asking your boss what he thought of it. Perhaps we ought to be going to him to find out what his priorities for our day are. See, arguing and complaining have a way of distracting us from becoming what he called us to be. You know what he's really called you to be? His agency on earth. He has called you to be his ambassador on earth. His hands and feet on earth. Now... Who in here, if you were chosen to be the ambassador of the eternal God on earth, his mouthpiece, his spokesperson, his agent of change on earth would struggle with low self-esteem? So let's call it what it is. It's sin. And we need to stop. Who, Who, if you were God's ambassador on earth, would see your life as insignificant. You see, it turns out that most of the things that our Christian books are about, most of the things that our popular Christian radio is about, most of the things that our sermons are about, 
would be completely unnecessary if people just loved the word of God. It's useful for encouraging, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Listen to the progression. If encouragement doesn't work, then we show you clearly guidelines like to help you. If that kind of correction doesn't work, then you move to an out-and-out rebuke. You are wrong. The Bible says this. It is here. You are here. You must close the distance. If that doesn't work, do you know what we do? We retrain. <laughs> because there is no other remedy available to man. Does that make sense? Could we use some training in righteousness? We all want encouragement. That's what we want. It's what we expect from our pastors. And... In fact, you could fill, I don't know, a basketball stadium as long as all you ever did was encourage with one message. You're already fantastic. Friends, that's idolatry. It's idolatry. It says, if you have found the starting line, it is the finish line, you are done. That doesn't allow us to become anything except hypocrites and liars. I want to see you become sons And daughters of God. Is there anybody in this house that would like to become something more? Here comes 2 Peter 1.4. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them, you may participate in the divine nature. And escape the corruption in the world caused by... Caused by... The corruption in the world is caused by what? You just don't know my heart. Or maybe the Bible does know your heart. And the remedy is the divine nature. Friends, where do we learn about the divine nature? In the word of God. The more the word of God is imprinted on your heart, the more evil thoughts have no place to remain. The more you have his mind, the less you have the natural mind. The more you are thinking on the word of God, the less you will be thinking on the things of the world. When Peter was rebuked in Matthew 16, he was rebuked as if he were Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you always have in mind the things of men. You are being ruled by your natural mind. A man who knew who the Messiah was, who declared him the Messiah before any other of the disciples had done it. On this rock, I'm going to build the church. And in the very next breath, he was dominated by his own thoughts. What does that illustrate to you? You can know who Messiah is, but still not have his thoughts operating in the place of yours. That process is how you become something. I'd like you to go with me to 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read this and then move on to the meat in our text. Are you guys doing all right tonight? Pastor Wade was supposed to speak this evening. And when I grow up, I want to be just like Pastor Wade. If I were going to vote for somebody to be the pastor of this church, I would split my vote between Pastor Wade and Pastor Matthew. I am their biggest fans. They are better pastors than I am. They are better men than me. I have learned that if you hang out with people that are better than you, it does good things for you. What it does for them is yet to be seen. 
Everything that has guided my life has come from the king of the universe sharing one of his thoughts with me. They are so precious that they are more important to me than a house, than a car, than popularity, than my own family. When the Lord himself shares something with you, you may find yourself saying something like this. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Transformational power, saints. With the Holy Spirit. Don't read that as a title. Read it as a function. With the spirit of holiness. And with deep conviction. The thing that ought to mark your life is not complaining outwardly. It's not confused inner dialogue. It ought to be a deep conviction about what God thinks about a subject. Once you have had your thoughts encountered by his, in other words, once he has shared his mind with you, it'll change everything. I was praying with a young woman at the altar the other day. Beautiful, amazing, godly saint. And out of her trembling little body began to come the words, He, he, he loves me! He lo- Jesus loves me! Now, I've heard that from thousands of people. The difference is, the other people that I usually hear it from are standing in their sin, declaring God's approval on their life, And somebody shared that thought with them. The woman who was crying it out at this altar, God himself had shared that thought with. And do you know what? It is already revolutionizing her life. You have no idea what an encounter with one thought of God will do to you. First time he ever showed up in my life in a way that I could discern him. It was so crushing, so empowering, so extraordinary. All I could muster out of my mouth was, Lord, change me. And he has honored that uh, few little words prayer all of these years. And when I get really in trouble, all I have to do is go back to that one moment in time when I first began to understand his thought. Friends, do not use... Your heart is an excuse to stay where you're at. Don't do it. Honestly evaluate your own actions as they relate to the word of God and then make course correction as necessary. Amen? You know in Isaiah 55, he says in various ways that my thoughts are not your thoughts. You know that he speaks about his word uh, going to the earth and Not returning void. That is beautiful and I love that passage. The reason I'm not reading it and really emphasizing it is in reading that it does nothing for you until he gives you one of his words. And I can't just give you that. I can tell you what his word to mankind is, but you need his word for you. And when you have his word for you, it changes everything. Look at Romans 12 too. In Romans 12, 2, this is a slide. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be, but be. Do you think that's something that happens once? And if it just happened once, 
then what happened to our process? Did we get stalled somewhere? Because there's not a single glorified body in this room, although there's one good-looking blonde on the front row that's come close. (laughs) Not one glorified saint in this whole room. So have you been transformed? Are you being transformed? Will you yet to be transformed? The answer is yes to all. Do not stagnate your um, potential. The Lord is making something out of you. Say that out loud. He's making something of me. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That's kind of like shining. Are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. Say ever increasing. Come on ladies. When you put on your lipstick in the morning. When you got that super magnified mirror out there. With the big bright light on it. You know if I did that all I would see is more beard. Mike, try that. It could be a good investment. What if your makeup was not a cover-up? Isn't that kind of ridiculous that people wear a base, a foundation, something to cover? Look, I'm not, I don't want to go Pentecostal. I think that people ought to be pretty. But let's chat about it for a second. Are you revealing his glory with an ever increasing glory? Or do you feel barely good enough to make it through the day? Can you say that you're being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit? Or do you feel so miserable that you are not qualified to exist today guys that's sin it's every bit as much sin as if somebody walked in here and said they were god you know we think humility is uh, groveling humility is when you rightly understand your position humility is when you neither think too highly of yourself nor too lowly of yourself It is not humble to debase yourself when God says you have ever-increasing glory. This is why James says that the poor are to take pride in their high position, but the rich need to understand they have a master as well. Humility is when we rightly understand who we are in Christ. Meekness is when you have no resistance to his moving in your life, whatever he wants to do with you. If when the Lord begins to move in you, you say, no, I could never do that. That's not godly. It's not meekness. If you say, "Ah, he shouldn't have chosen me. He can't have chosen me. I can't do that. That's not humility. If your husband looks at you and says you're beautiful and you don't feel beautiful, you're sinning. Wow, it's very quiet in here. I just need to be encouraged. You need to be encouraged that your thoughts are corrupt. You are incapable of sorting it out yourself and just surrender that to the Lord and let him do it. See, if you believe what he said, then you wouldn't have to battle with your own thoughts. They wouldn't have any control over you. That's not even to get into those satanic ones. Let's do this. 
Let's go to Psalm 109. I'm going to cover one last negative example. Then we're going to pull the ship up. When I grow up, I want to be like these godly pastors on the front row. And what success would look like is if I was like the elders on the second and third row. I got a long ways to go. And rather than present myself further along than I actually am and you'd be disappointed, I'm just going to set the bar low and then see if I can surpass it for you, right? Wake up and say, don't form any opinions yet. I hadn't had my first cup of coffee. In Psalm 109, can you all read that? This is David speaking of somebody who is opposing him. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May be it far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. See, as much as what is inside you will work its way outside you, what you are constantly projecting to the world, it has worked its way inside you, whether you know it or not. This is what's wrong with saying, that's not what I meant. That's not who I am. That's that's not me. Pastor told me the other day, uh, hey, I, I'm not trying to be exasperating. I said, well, you are succeeding. Doesn't matter whether you're trying to do it or not. If it is what you're doing, let's, let's own up to the actual action and stop defending yourself in the middle of your pity party. It was a turning point in his life. Do you know why? He was embarrassed in front of lots of people. Something we're never supposed to do. I don't know. I kind of think that immaturity ought to be embarrassing and it ought to make us want to grow to maturity. I know this, I know not addressing it hasn't done anything. This man spent enough time dwelling on negative things to where that's all that was in his body, soul, and bones. Okay, let's, let's see if we can get to a golden calf here. You ready? You braced? How many of you have really godly, glowing, amazing, heavenly thoughts when you're in Houston traffic. Feel like it's okay to, what is this guy doing? Look at that. Who's he think he is? Look at this idiot. My father had new expressions, uh, some of which I can't say to you and others that I can, but somebody was not lacking intelligence if they were not driving correctly, it was, look at this moron. I didn't, I had to go look it up because of the way that he spelled it, you know. If you spend your life driving, you know what you're doing? Spending a great deal of your time molding your thoughts into something that is not God. So we could stop driving. Of course, you wouldn't get to go to work, wouldn't bring home that paycheck. You don't get to eat. And since we can't change all the drivers around us, what do you think has to change? You have to transform your mind with the word of God. Brother Curtis was preaching on this one time. He says, son, you need some new neural pathways. I loved it. It sounds so scientific that it has to be right. (laughs) 
new neural pathways. Well, if that's what we need, then they're only found in the word of God. You know, how, how about all of your thinking about politics? When you go to work, is there a different you that shows up to work than at church? Are you pretty convinced that that's just how the world works? Because we're supposed to be in it and not of it. See, what begins to happen is a subtle deception slips over us. That I know I act like that. I know that that's how people see me. I know that that comes up a lot, but that's not who I am. What if it's exactly who you are? Then it only points out the need to mature, the need to change, the need to grow. I would just go so far as to say if for 20 years you've been joyless and the biggest encouragement that you get from people is slap a smile on your face, that it's data denial to act like you don't have a real problem with joy. You know, I can bring my car to Baja shop and tell him that it's the tires, it's the tires, it's the tires. But if there's no engine, I might have to trust the mechanic. Yeah. You are not the best evaluator of your own life. The word of God is. The truth is, is that we are self-deceived and whatever your mind wants, whatever your heart wants, your mind tends to justify And because of that, you can find yourself in really dark places and feel fine about it until you're caught. Daily interaction with the word of God is a collision. Having friends that wield the word of God with ease. And they love you enough to not be particularly careful with it around you. That's what you need. My favorite stories are when new Christians correct older Christians. In my very favorite stories, not only do I not see it as rebellious, I see it as courageous. It's like a reminder. Hey, the standard's the same for all of us, and you're supposed to set an example for me, and I'm not seeing it. Well, you could hate the new Christian for that, or you could thank him for being more like Christ than you. Is it our goal to become more like Christ? Oh, no, no. Is it our goal to become more like Christ? If it is, then like Psalm 141 verse 5 says, we're going to thank people who correct us. We're going to consider it an oil, a kindness. Did you see that this sickness entered into his body like water and into his bones like oil? Did y'all see that? Let's look at a better verse. You ready? Psalm 105. This would be another slide. I put the 1984 NIV on your screen for you because we're going to go through some linguistics gymnastics here. Psalm 105, verse 18. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put into irons. This is a psalm about Joseph in Egypt. The amplified version is also wrong. It says his feet, they hurt with fetters. He was laid in chains of iron and his soul entered into the iron. How different are those two verses? That's incredible. One's talking about a neck. The other's talking about uh, a soul. One is uh, somebody is put in chains or irons. The other is iron entered into someone. I'm sorry, rather the soul entered into the iron. Let's begin to take this apart. There is a Hebrew word in this passage, nefesh. 
You can see that it's used 753 times in the Older Testament with a broad range of meanings. But most all of them fall into these categories. Breath, whether literally or figuratively. The inner being, which you and I would call a soul with its thoughts and emotions. Or by extension, the whole person. So we're either talking about your breath, your soul, or you as a whole person. It turns out that nefesh is translated into Greek throughout the Bible, whether it's a Greek Older Testament or the Greek of the New Testament, whether we're talking about the Septuagint or the Textus Receptus in the New Testament. The cognate for nefesh is the word psyche. Have you heard that word before? Your psyche is your soul, your life, or the person, the essence of life in terms of thinking, willing, and feeling, your inner self, mind, thoughts, and feelings, the heart, or the being. Do you hear how similar that Hebrew word nefesh and the Greek word psyche are? What an incredible thing then. This is how the Septuagint translates Psalm 105 and verse 18. It's our next slide. They humbled with shackles his feet. Iron went through his soul. Now the Amplified said his soul went into the iron. But the Septuagint doesn't say that. The Septuagint says the iron went through his soul. Let me ask you about Joseph's circumstances. Did he encounter problems first or the promise first? Are you sure? Joseph, a young man favored by his father, he has a dream. He comes and tells the dream to his brother. He has another dream. He comes and tells the dream to his mother and father. God shared his thoughts with Joseph. It had to do with sheaves bowing down to him. It had to do with the the moon and the sun and the stars bowing down to him. Joseph received a promise. And immediately after receiving a promise... He was sold out by his brothers. Loving the favor of his father more than the favor of his brothers, he brought a bad report about them to the father. Turns out that when God has shared his thoughts with you, you stop caring so much about men's thoughts. They're mad at Joseph. They call him a dreamer. He's approaching from the distance, and where did they throw him? Into a hole. But while he was in the hole, do you know what he still had? He still had the promise. When he's pulled out of the hole and he's sold as a slave, he's put in the house of a harlot, a loose woman who wants to do uh, immoral things with him. You know what he still had? His promise. I want to talk to you about that for just a second, and I won't take that long. If God has shared his thoughts with you and the devil tries to take them, stand up, Matthew. Matthew hurt me the other day. He popped my back for me and now my ribs are out of place. His brother is strong like a beast. There are people in this world that if you push them, they're going to cower into a corner. Matthew is not one of those men. He might turn the other cheek. He might love you. He might even look at you and say, I can take all you've got, but you can't handle what my God is going to do with you. I'd like you to think about Matthew and Joseph for just a minute. If you have the promise and I push, that could conform you to the pressure that I'm putting on you. 
But a man that holds tightly to the promise, it does something entirely different. It says, push me and you can't stop me. Shove me and you can't stop me. Imprison me and you can't stop me. The man with the promise becomes just a little more sure every time the promise is tested. I'm telling you that every attack of the enemy on the sanctity of the call of God in my life makes me more sure that God has in fact called me. He is working iron into my soul. I am not crushed by the attack of the enemy and neither were the apostles that wrote to us that we are hard pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair. I am not because it is proving the genuineness of my call. So Joseph sold into slavery is not crushed by what has happened because he still has God's thoughts. Joseph put in the house of a whore, not broken by it. He left the house naked, running. Somebody had a hold of his clothes, but he still had a hold of his promise. He's put in prison, but he's not confined in the prison. He can still reach out and grab hold of God's thoughts. So people come and see the prisoner who's surrounded by criminals, but he's not a criminal. He's actually like Christ. He can interpret the dream of the baker and say you will be broken. Interpret the dream of the wine bearer and say you will be restored, be forgotten. But he didn't forget the promise of God. So when he's brought into a palace, the palace didn't make him. He made the palace. God is building into your soul. The iron that makes you who you are. Don't resent it. Don't hate it. Don't guard yourself and say, you know, that's not really who I am. That's not my heart. Just take it as a little iron infusion into your diet. Because we're supposed to be men of deep, hard, steely conviction. And a man that is convinced of what God thinks about him cannot become unconvinced when he faces ordinary people. Samuel Clemens said, don't argue with an idiot. He will drag you down to his level and beat you in his experience. Why would I want to argue with men when I know what God thinks? In fact, the man who needs to argue probably doesn't know the mind of his Lord, turn with me to Hebrews 13. When you get to Hebrews 13, say, Pastor, I'm there. Whether healed or hurt, whether bleeding, crying or rejoicing, the pastors in this church do not let go of the promise. And we don't because the promise is making us into what the promise is. Church, if you could grab hold of the eternal word of God, not in a general sense that says I have a Bible, in a very personal sense that says the Bible's got hold of me. If you could do that, if you could do that in a real and meaningful way, self-esteem would no longer be a problem. In fact, there's very little that the world could ever do to you that would cause you to doubt what God has done for you. The 8th chapter, of, 
We're going to stay in Hebrews. The 8th chapter of Romans says, His spirit bears witness with my spirit. See, when the living God is working iron into your soul, it's not hard to be an oak of righteousness. You start off as a seed. You break the soil as a sapling. And you just grow in the light of his revelation, the water of his word, and the roots of the fellowship of his church, and you become what he has called you to be. The person who does not love the word has always got weeds choking out what God is growing. He's got birds of the air trying to pick off what God is trying to plant. He's got a hard heart that says, nobody rightly understands me but me. The best thing you could possibly do is be vulnerable before the presence of God. In Hebrews 13, 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, that what? Great shepherd of the sheep. If you are shepherded by a great shepherd, how could we complain about the path he takes us on, the food he feeds us, or the dangers that we face? They're out of place. We would not spend all of our time trying to convince all of the other sheep that the shepherd has led us down a harder path. Instead, all we would be doing is talking about how great our great shepherd is. My friend, Pastor Sutherland, is going through difficulties at work. I love him, but I am so glad that it's happening. I'm glad that it happened to Matthew. I'm glad that it happened to me. And many more trials do we still have because it's working iron into our souls. You can ask me a question this year and I may be completely indifferent on it. But when God speaks to me, when he shows me his heart, I cannot be moved from it. There are times in your life things won't matter very much to you because you don't know God's mind about it. He hasn't shared his heart with you about it. But once he has, then you stop arguing about choices. There is no choice. You represent God. In Hebrews thirteen twenty, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus... That great shepherd of the sheep equip you with everything good for doing his will. What does he equip you with? Everything good for what? Doing. This do-nothing gospel has got to get flushed down the same toilet as the prosperity non-gospel. He saved you so that you could do. He saved you because he loves you and he wants you to bring that love to everyone else. A faith that does not show up in action is not faith at all. If you fall short of that tonight, then there's just room to mature. It's not the end of your story. It's the beginning of the testimony of God's greatness in your story. Equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Could you pray that with me? May he work in us 
what is pleasing to him. What if you need more iron in your soul? May he work into us what is pleasing to him. You say, but Lord, what I need is who told you what you need? Did the word of God tell you or did you decide what you need? Do you have the right to look at your master and tell him what you need? He knows what you need before you ever asked him. What if you don't know what you need? I love my children. They're amazing people. I got some of the finest kids that anyone could have. But they rarely know what they need. That's my job. I never had one say, you know, Dad, I probably need you to just whoop me really good. (laughs) But I can assure you they needed it. Even my little dachshund, I took a coat hanger to him the other day. I uh, called PETA. We can have steak together. It's not a common occurrence. I love him. He's a pathetic little animal. He's incapable of doing anything except peeing on my floor, stealing food from my garbage can. The one thing that I require of him, and it's literally the only thing I require of him, is when I call him, it's not optional. I want him to come when I call him. And because I was standing too close to the shower... And he has an aversion to being clean, filthy little animal. He looked at me, began to slink away, and went and hid. After I broke a coat hanger over him, when I walked through the door, he's the first to greet me. If I mention any word with a W in it, he thinks I'm beginning to call his name and he's right by me. If the Lord loves you, he will discipline you. It never feels good at the present. But it means that you are a legitimate son. That's what the Bible teaches. And these charlatans, ecclesiastical pimps, these soul hustlers that are selling you something else, they need to be disciplined by the Lord. I'd like to read to you just a couple more scriptures. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Saints, if you are in process somewhere... 
If you are born but not yet mature, if you are mature but not as mature as you would like to be, if you are struggling in some situation remembering that the King of Kings is working into you the precious metal that causes you to stand and become useful in His house, He is not a bad shepherd. He's not. It's offensive to even insinuate it. He is not unaware of what is happening to you. He's not unable to change what is happening to you. If he hasn't changed it, it's because it's good for you. Brother Yoon is a remarkable Christian in the Chinese church. And he rebuked Americans. He said, stop praying that God change our government. He said, democracy and communism. Neither one are the answer. He said, God has chosen the government over our land that is shaping the church in the way that He wants it to be. It's the resistance that makes us strong. And in our land, we think if we have resistance, it's a sign God is not with us. No, apathy is a sign that God's not with you. Let us close with these two passages from Second Peter. 119, there's a striking similarity to where we started. It says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Say, made more certain. It's made more certain because every time it was tested, it stood the test. Every time his thought he shared with you was put to the test, whether you were thrown in a hole, tested by a harlot, or surrounded by criminals, the promise stood. When you have the word made more certain, you will do well to pay attention to it. As to light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises where? That promise of the word of God will cause you to shine. And that shining will cause his star to rise in your heart. We don't need to stand and defend our own hearts. What we need to do is shine. One of the things I'm just going to air out my frustration because we're going to take communion tonight and I want to be right with the Lord. One of the most difficult things to deal with as a pastor is the way in which every Christian walks in and tells you about the uniqueness of their circumstances. What they're basically saying is, given what's happened to me, it's completely understandable. It's even justifiable that I am the way that I am. And if anybody were telling you that, you would know how sick and twisted it is. But when it's coming out of your own mouth, it feels right, you know? I mean, that's right. It was difficult for me. I have done wrong. It is harder for me than Pastor Wade. And nothing's as easy for me as Pastor Matthew. Be careful what you're fighting for because there is one standard for all mankind. One. One for Chinese Christians. One for African Christians. One for European Christians. One for all mankind. One promise. And it's equally accessible to all People, learning disabled people, physically disabled people, or like me, spiritually corrupt people. That promise is available to 
all. Don't bar yourself against his promise. There is a barrier. There is a bar against all learning, an impenetrable fortress that no one can ever break down. That barrier, that bar, that fortress is contempt prior to investigation. You look into the word. You know what you will find? That you're not any different than every other person sitting in here. And the promise is exactly the same for each of you. You just have to grab hold of it. So I return to the very first scripture that I read tonight. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do everything without an outward expression of evil or inward dialogue that is evil. So that you may become, you are being transformed, you should become something. Blameless and pure, children of God without fault. That's a high standard. Blameless, say it, blameless. Blameless. Pure, Pure. children of God God. without fault. Look how high he set the bar for you. Now examine the playing field. In a depraved generation, a crooked, depraved generation. The cards have always been stacked against you. You have always been outnumbered. That's why you are a star. Church, not everybody is going to make it. Narrow is the way and few are those who find it. They'll be the ones that had an iron-like faith in their souls. They shine like stars in the universe and they hold out the word of life in order that Those who went before them may boast on the day that they didn't run or labor for nothing. We're going to stand here and 